0: Amen. Good afternoon. I don't know why I've got the rep as uh, the most dangerous one. You dropped a half a pound book on some poor geezer's head, mate. <laughs> right, why don't we break with uh, the tradition of the last few talks and open the Bible, yeah? <laughs> Ooh. I'm here all day son, all day long. I'm not been... I've definitely not been listening but I've got a great high score on Angry Birds. Okay Romans 12, let's pray. Lord we love you, we're thankful for friendship like this and uh, the, 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 the way we love and uh, honour and cherish one another in this room and Thankful for every soul here present, not going to assume that every one of us in this building has been born again by your spirit, Lord. And so we pray that your spirit would work powerfully among us, those of us who know and love you already, and perhaps those among us yet, Lord, to taste the sweetness of uh, salvation. So give us a concentration, Lord, uh, transform both our minds and our hearts for the glory of the gospel of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So let me just quickly read uh, Romans uh, 12. Not all of it, just the first um, eight (coughs) verses. This is Paul speaking. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given me, I, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You know, the battle for the soul of uh, the human race has always been a battle for the mind. We say lots of thing, things about salvation, lots of things about what a Christian is, what the gospel is, we've heard lots of good things, but salvation begins and ends with a change of minds and a change of hearts, but there cannot be one without the other. We need not pit them against each other, they work together. The truth is this, whoever controls the mind controls the heart and controls the soul. That's why in in Romans, from chapter 12 all the way through to the end of this book, Paul is going to help the church to change their minds. He's really, really keen that their minds are transformed about all sorts of things. He's going to talk about the, the relationship to the church, the government, enemies, family, fellow believers, and Paul hopes, and he's hoping in in, in chapter 12, um, that by instructing their minds, their pattern, their old sinful pattern and way of thinking itself would be transformed. Because only a changed mind, Paul tells us in verse 2, can actually help us to discern the good and perfect will of God. You see, when we come to faith in Jesus, when we are submerge ourselves in the Word and in a good gospel loving church, everything changes. When we're saved by Jesus, we can never be the same again. We can run back to sin, we can run back to sinful practices and sinful company. But if we've been truly touched by the Spirit of God, even that is not the same. It doesn't taste as good sin as it used to taste. It doesn't feel as good. And Paul wants to change our minds in these few verses, and he wants to change them in five very different, but actually supremely connected ways. And I'm just going to zip through these changes. The first thing he wants to do All he wants to do, um, for us to do, sorry, is he wants to change our minds about the way we live as Christians. Two words jump off the page in verse 1. And the words are living sacrifice. In Matthew 16, 24 to 25, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it in galatians 2:20 paul describes the christian as somebody uh, as being somebody crucified with christ who no longer lives for self in romans 12 actually the phrase here for living sacrifice is probably better translated as a living death. Present your life as a living death to God. We come to Jesus, we know our bodies, our lives. None of these things are our own anymore. He's already reminded the church in chapter 6 and verse 20 that each of us, every Christian, has been bought at a price. And that high price ought to have seeped into our minds and hearts and souls to such an extent that we are forced by the power of the Spirit into change. And so often when I'm listening to Christians answer the question, how did you become a Christian? Or what has Jesus done for you? In your life, I'm often interested to listen. Very few times do I hear somebody say, "Jesus transformed my entire way of thinking. He, t- he took me off drugs, he made me mad, he gave me a new heart, he made me feel special." No, none of these things are wrong. But very, very, not too often do I hear the phrase, "Jesus changed my mind about every single thing." Has our minds been transformed? By the truth to such an extent that we are willing to offer ourselves as a living death to the Lord now if you have been a Christian in church any length of time you know these truths you probably agree with these truths nothing the here that I'm saying that's controversial and going to get me into trouble on Twitter don't imagine yet But the question remains is this. We say we agree with it, but do our lies reflect it? You see, we're great liars, aren't we? You're a Christian in the room today, you know you're a liar. You're a liar. I'm a liar too. We lie to ourselves all the time. We hear stuff like this, maybe we've been to the conference like this, we feel a bit convicted by all the calls to do this, that, and the other. We tell ourselves, you know... I'd go to a lost tribe if God called me to. I'd sell it all. I'd pack up the kids. I'd, 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 I'd get the family in. I'd go anywhere the Lord tells me to. And yet, we tell ourselves that lie, and we won't even go to the scheme. 500 yards from our own doorstep. You know, if we swapped the story of the Good Samaritan for the story of the feckless junkie on benefits, how many of us really would be among the number who passed by them in the street and left them to die? We tell ourselves we'd be the Good Samaritan, but we lie. Sacrificial missionary living, you see. Sacrificial missionary dying sounds noble, doesn't it? It sounds romantic, sounds like chariots of fire and these great mad missionaries who lived years ago and their mad escapades, we love it, brilliant. But it's less romantic when it comes to teens in balaclavas driving dirt bikes through the streets of of your community at three in the morning. Isn't it? Madagascar sounds far better than Mary Hill, right? (laughs) Goa sounds sexier than Govan. Paul is clear. He wants us to change our minds about our lives, about how we live. He wants us to sacrificially die every single day until the moment we're taken to glory. That kind of life, Paul says, is what pleases God. That kind of life is what God uh, accepts as holy. And so we, we need to have our minds changed, all of us, about the idea that service for the Lord should be something that we find fulfilling and makes us happy. If you notice that. We often make decisions about what we want to do, where we want to go, on how fulfilled or happy it might make us. But that is not the way that God wants us to live the Christian life. Sacrificial dying has got nothing to do with us. Sacrificial dying is about Jesus. How many people out there in the world will sacrifice their family, they'll sacrifice their health, they'll sacrifice some of them their lives in pursuit of their own ambitions for life? you imagine the fruit we could have if we put that same energy into our spiritual lives and into serving God for his kingdom? I mean, if, you, if we want to sacrifice lives, health, and anything else in the service of anything, then surely we should be doing it in the service of the Lord, Right? But here's what I suspect. I suspect far too many of us slip into the pattern of doing just enough to get by without having to really stretch ourselves too much. But Paul says, listen, part of what it means to have a transformed mind is to have a sacrificial life. Now let me add some nuance to all this, because we live in a culture always seeking offence, don't we? Sacrificial dying for Jesus looks different for the frazzled mama of five watching the kids and for the single woman with no children. It looks different for the single father. It looks different for the university student. It looks different for the sparky apprentice. It looks different for the unemployed. It looks different for the... Retired, it looks different for the home carer, it looks different for those with disabilities. Have I got everybody? <laughs> someone's gonna come out afterwards, you. you didn't say this, you didn't say one-legged people <laughs> with an eye patch. It looks different for you too, okay? The young single church intern is able more easily to sacrifice 10 hours of their week over a weekender serving than the young mum who, despite her tiredness and stresses of life, is actually giving her all in the crush, for a couple of hours. We're not on the clock when it comes to sacrificial dying for the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't gauge the merit of our service by how many hours we put in. It's by how sacrificially we served him to the best of our ability within our own personal limitations. The Lord's asking for us. Now, I remember a while back, I can't remember Pete because everyone knows I forget everything. I think me and Pete were talking a while back in the car. And I think Pete said something like, I've got all these amazing opportunities, but I just can't see where the workers are going to come from. Does that sound about right? At first, I thought that was quite funny. I thought it was making a joke since, you know, where you've been for the last 10 years. That's basically how 20 schemes has come into being. But on the other hand, I'm like, I can see. I can see what you mean. But I don't have to see or know where the next uh, church planters or women's workers or whatever is going to come from. And it doesn't really interest me because we don't really work in that way. But God sees where they're coming from and God knows where they're coming from. And after ten years of doing this and twenty-five, three or four or five years in ministry, I can tell you, I'm pretty certain, that these people will come from faithful men and women of all kinds willing to sacrificially die to their own dreams and ambitions for the sake of the gospel in poor communities. That's who's doing the work so far. I think if what people have already said that's the problem with going last, is everybody's already said everything. No superstars in the kingdom. It's men and women from all walks of life, professionals who move in and support or work financially, are as much sacrificially dying to Christ as the full time pastor. And don't be kidded otherwise. You know, the family who'll sacrifice better schooling in a safer neighbourhood to join a small planting team, do not underestimate the sacrifice that entails. And we thank you and praise God for those of you across the country who currently do that. And we pray for more. Church planting and revitalization is not a professional gig. It's not for the super gifted. And Paul and us and me want to change your mind if that's your thinking. Christian service in whatever context is for the willing and the sacrificial. It's for those not too proud to get their hands dirty and for those not too proud to roll up their sleeves and get on with work that they know is far beyond their natural ability to do so. The first mind change. The second mind change is found in verse 3. He wants us not just to change our minds about service but to change our thinking about ourselves. We're told to do two things if you look at verse 3. He says, don't think too highly of yourself and judge yourself soberly. So, we all think we understand people well enough, don't we? We'll reflect long and hard about what we think goes on in other people's hearts and minds, and yet, if we're honest, we understand very little about ourselves, do we? And even if we do understand something about ourselves, if it's something we don't like, we'll either pap it off, deny it, or make excuses for ourselves. And I think a lot of the times, many of us are stuck in spiritual uh, neutral because of this. You know, if we don't understand ourselves, if we don't judge ourselves soberly against the Lord and his word, then we're never gonna be effective church members. In fact, instead of building up local churches, will actually cause division. We've got to be very, very careful. Sober, sorry, <clears throat> sober, sober, Soberly judging ourselves is a necessity for the Christian. You know, if I want to marry somebody, then it needs to be somebody who knows my weaknesses, right, as much as my strengths. Because once the dating game is over and the real us comes to the service, then <laughs> things are gonna get serious. So I've got to use an illustration of uh, my future son-in-law, <laughs> who looks a bit like a cross between a Fraggle <laughs> and that Mark singer from the 80s, what's his name? No, not Mark, I wish it was Mark Bolan, but no. <laughs> the one who sang stupid love songs with long hair. Anyway. Richard Marx, is it? Doesn't matter, you're getting a picture. If you don't know what a fraggle is? Look at any man in here with a beard and it's pretty much that. <laughs> anyway, so my, my, my child is getting married, um, unfortunately, and I had to go to America to meet this fella. And um, sat down with them both, and I said to him, after a bit, of, well, there was no preamble, it was just, t- I said to him, right son, tell me what her weaknesses are, what sin needs to be challenged in her life, and what her most annoying habit is. <laughs> and he just sat there and looked at me, and he said, oh, I can't think of anything. He's like a little puppy, you know, when they're at that stage. <laughs> And I said, well, then, if you can't think of anything, you're not marrying my daughter. Because I can tell you 10 things right now, without thinking very hard. So anyway, we had a little you know, cup of tea. And we did social things that my wife has taught me uh, required to live in this world. And um, I said to him, listen, right, she's not here. We left her. Right, listen, lad. Tell me something right now. Bang, rattles off half a dozen things. <laughs> Everyone I recognised. And you know what? I said, yeah, you can marry a son. Because all the joking aside, it was a sign to me they had a relationship that was open to their sins and their weaknesses. And I didn't do it because I'm a monster. <coughs> oh, I am a monster. <laughs> I did it because I love my daughter and I tolerate this man. You know, and, 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 I, and I want them, long story short, I want them to enter into this union with their eyes open and with sober judgment. You know, engagements are often almost totally focused on the upcoming event, the honeymoon, what kind of dress, what color, what shape, napkins, how many layers in the cake, who's going to sit where. I mean, it's hours and hours and hours spent thinking and planning for what literally ends up being... A eight to ten hour event, right? Now, if that's the level of sober reflection, you like, that goes into half a day, then how much needs to go into a lifetime together? Because unfortunately, love does not conquer all. The heart flutters we get, you know, when you see them soon turn to rage when you've got to pick his dirty pants off the floor or she shaves your legs, her legs with your favorite razor right? We've got to have a serious assessment about ourselves. But on the other hand, we don't, what we don't want to do is, not, Paul isn't saying, sober assessment isn't, don't just think about all your weaknesses. Don't just think about the hundred reasons why you can't serve in your local church. And that rule applies not just to us as individuals, but as to churches. I've lost count of the number of church leaders who've said to me, we love what you're doing, we've got some difficult communities on our doorstep, but we don't know what to do with them. Well, pray for them. Pray for your own mind, not just your heart, but your mind to be changed, for your thinking to be changed. Soberly reflect on what it's going to take and who can go and then sacrificially do it. Here's what I know Scotland won't be won by the flash and the gifted, it'll be won by the weak and the faithful. Third mind change he wants us to think about is uh, changing our minds about how we serve. You know, Paul mentioned seven specific gifts in verses six to eight to be used in the local church. There are, almost, there are at least 20 more to be found elsewhere in the New Testament. I'm not getting bogged down with any of these gifts. I'm I'm less concerned about the specific gifts in this text than I am in the way that we're told to engage in these gifts. And two words stand out for me. There's more words, but these are the two words that stood out for me. Zeal and cheerfulness. Whatever our gifting, Paul says, are we sacrificially using them with zeal and cheerfulness? Are we serving with everything we've got, with the whole heart, with our whole minds, for the benefit of the body, or are we just scraping by? Are we doing what's necessary without stretching ourselves? Is our service done with a joyful spirit or a grudging spirit? Because the attitude with which we serve is far more important and the level of our ability. Maybe you've got a chronic illness, and you can't do as much as you want to. Maybe that frustrates you. But you can still do and serve the Lord with everything you've got zealously and cheerfully, even within those restrictions. That's all God's asking of us. Let's just stop finding reasons not to serve. Let's change our thinking, Paul says. Let's seek God for a spirit to be a cheerful and zealous, sacrificial server in what we can do. And don't get downhearted and bitter if others are, you know, are not serving as sacrificially as you do. I find it is an interesting phenomenon, and I don't know if it's just, I'm getting older and generations change, but well they do, but there seems to be an awful lot of competition about who's sacrificing more, who's serving more. People tend to, church interns particularly, tend to count their hours and they weigh their hours against somebody else's hours and a church member's hours. And you need, We need to stop doing that. Focus on your heart, your mind, your service. That's what God wants from you. We don't know what people are doing behind closed doors. You don't know what people are doing... In the background, the, the guy or lady uh, 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 on the chair and, uh, uh, on a Sunday that you think, what do they do? I don't see them. What do you know about them or their life or what they're, or what they're doing? Mm-hmm. We don't know. We're quick, aren't we? We're quick off the mark. This is about us. It's about our minds. Serve the Lord with joy, we're commanded in Psalm 100 verse 2. If you're not feeling it, then ask the Lord. Change my mind. change my heart. Give me joy. Give me zeal. And of course we struggle. Some of us struggle really badly. But in those times, we remind ourselves and one another of Christ, don't we? That you do not see him, you, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Don't pit your gifts and service against another's. Don't judge someone because they don't have the same zeal for evangelism as you do. If you're zealous about understanding and applying doctrine, don't judge the Christian who struggles to grasp it, and yet they're amazingly compassionate and hospitable. Don't judge the widow's mite because you can afford to give more. Don't covet somebody else's gifts. Instead, faithfully, zealously, persistently, cheerfully, sacrificially practice your own. Be the most merciful Christian that you can be. Be the most generous giver that you can be, the most fearless evangelist, the most careful expositor, the most hospitable person. Be the best encourager that you can be. Not out of pride, not out of ego, not out of competition, but out of love for Jesus and love for the church. There's something else he wants us to change in verse 3. He wants us to change our minds about our faith. It's an interesting one, actually. Caught me a little bit by surprise when I read it, and I've reread it several times. He says, well, well, We ask ourselves the question, what does he mean, Paul, in verse 3? But he says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Do these things, he says, each according to your measure of faith that you and I individually have been assigned for the benefit of the whole. Every Christian, Paul says, has been given a measure of faith, and some have been given more than others. And I'm really carefully saying this. In fact, you look at verse 6, Paul says, we're to use our gifts according to the amount of faith we've been given. He says in chapter 14, verse 1, he addresses, he says, this is how we're to deal with those who are, what, weaker in the faith. And so clearly in the church, there are those who've been apportioned Different levels of faith. Now, be careful. Does this make us better than one another? No, it doesn't. It just means, again, that we are different. Listen, if we've got the faith to make a big, giant change in our lives, then we shouldn't judge those who don't feel the same way and don't feel capable of taking such a giant step. We shouldn't say, well, we're doing it, We've got, we're doing this massive thing, therefore, so should you. And if you don't, then obviously, there's something wrong with your faith. You don't probably, you don't, do you love Jesus enough? You, wanna sit, you know, you sacrificial enough? No, 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 no. Paul says, no. Do these things according to the measure of the faith given to you, not the measure of the faith given to your neighbor or fellow church member. If we act with spiritual caution in life, then we shouldn't judge those who always want to race ahead. Our measure of faith is our measure of faith. We'll be judged on how sacrificially and cheerfully we lived according to the measure of faith that God assigned to us, okay? Do not get into a measuring contest, Because that is the way of folly and sin and bitterness and division in churches. You know, I think most people who know 20 Schemes know that Miriam and I um, announced our intention to leave Nidri two weeks ago. I've been at Nidri for 16 years as the pastor there and it's been relatively a fruitful ministry and it's been a place where we, we, we raised our girls in our home, and we, we're, we're leaving to go and um, help establish a new church plant in a, another part of Edinburgh, next to Hearts FC, of all places. Yeah, fill in the sectarian jokes, as you feel appropriate. Um, and a few people have, have written to us, have been very encouraging, more than a few, saying really brave what a great faith to take a step uh, step of faith to take at your age. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I am fifty, but I am a good—I'm a small fifty, but I'm still a good fifty. All right. And, I, I, it's fascinating because to them, maybe it does look mad. Left a church, the comforts, everything we know, good, good ministry, to go into this unknown thing with anyone who knows Benny of all people, meets wilds, But I was thinking, how does our faith compare, let's say, let's say we've got a wheelchair bound man, locked in his home, afraid of open spaces, hasn't been outside his building for fear since the lockdown, and yet he makes it out this week. Which act now demonstrates the greater faith? See, what happens when we get caught in this stuff? Well, in my mind, just so you're clear, that man demonstrates faith in God far greater than me stepping down from a pastorate. Measuring faith is futile. We do not know this side of glory what great faith truly is. I have no doubt of the faith needed for most Christians to consider moving into a housing scheme. You know, we often, you know, bang on about it, don't we? We need it, and we do need it. But we also—I also understand the fear in it, particularly for people who live in this country. I mean, Americans are easy to recruit because they're generally just a bit dumb, aren't they? And they don't know what. <laughs> they just don't know what they're getting into, do they? Yeah, we're just in this air. Uh, way. <laughs> no. But Scottish Christians are a bit smarter than that. <laughs> and they know what are they doing? American Christians aren't done. Don't hang me out in Twitter and All American Christians are dead intelligent, all right? It was this illustration. I've lost myself now. But the point is this. It is hard. It is a hard thought for many people, thinking, can I do it? Can I not do it? What do I do? What would it mean? All the questions. But here's what I do know. Without faith, without sacrificially dying, faith-filled steps, according to the measure given to you, Glasgow and Scotland will not ring with the sound of the gospel in our darkest communities. It's going to require a lot of mind changing and heart changing. It's going to require a new way of thinking and looking at the schemes on our doorstep. I cannot change your mind, but honestly, I sincerely hope that the Lord does. And it's been said before, and I'm not going to really harp on about it, Maybe you can't preach, but can you serve? Maybe you're not an upfront person or a confident evangelist. Can you give sacrificially? Can you just come and be a faithful, cheerful church member and support us? We're not all the same. We're not all gifted by God the same way. But have you thought that maybe the problem isn't that God has not gifted you for this ministry, but that the problem is that your mindset is all wrong. Maybe the real issue is that you haven't fanned into flame your spiritual gifts and used them according to the faith you've been given. Maybe some of us are defeated before we've even tried. Maybe maybe Satan has convinced us before we even get up off our chair, it'll never work. You'll never raise the money. You'll never do it. Maybe that's the problem. God has saved us. He saved us to serve him in very, very different but complementary ways. Let me just end here quickly. God wants to change our mind about the local church. I'm not going to get right, right into this. This is what the whole weekend is about, but we're saved, aren't we? We're saved, and we're saved. We're saved into a living spiritual community of God's people. We belong to one body, and we all play a part of the whole. That's what Paul means in verse 4. Look at verse 5, explicit. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We don't belong to ourselves. This is what our culture doesn't like. This is the bit that our culture now is about to hate. We don't belong to ourselves. We're happy. I can just say we belong to Jesus, amen. He's not saying that, though. We do. He's saying... You don't belong to yourself. You belong to your church. You belong to your other church members. They have the same right to have a a, a call on your life as you have a right to have a call on theirs. Our culture does not like this. When we recognize Jesus as king of our life, we stop being the most important person in the world. Jesus first, hear me out, the church is second, family is third, whoa, a few sweaty palms now, isn't there? We come to Christ, we hand ourselves over to him, and we hand ourselves over to one another in a local church body. And in Jesus, everything else in life comes a distant second. This kind of thinking is as radical today, right, as it's ever been in church history. When we understand that, when we understand what it means that we belong to one another, sacrificial dying doesn't seem so hard. Sometimes someone will say to me, oh, I, you know, I, I'm different than any of the other Christians in my church, you know, maybe they're middle class or this or that or I'm this or that, I feel out of place. Well, that may be true for you, but it's true for every person in a local church regardless of their social context. We're all different from others. We all feel different from others because we all are different from one another according to the good purposes of God. You might just struggle to communicate with middle class people. You might find struggling to communicate with scheme people. Maybe you find some of us too loud and obnoxious. I'm holding names in. Maybe some of them appear threatening to you. Maybe someone's a snob. I mean, there are a hundred reasons for why each person feels different or why each of us feel disconnected from some people in our local churches. But if we are truly in Jesus Christ, then these people are our brothers and sisters and we owe them our lives. Whoa. Just our allegiance on Sunday, high fives, throw a few quid in, see at the prayer meeting. We owe them our lives. We owe Christ our life. We owe them our life. In Jesus, we are a part of them as they are a part of us. I said this to a visiting group of Canadians who were with us, and I'll say it again. I keep saying it. Reaching the schemes of Scotland with the gospel of Jesus isn't hard. Any idiot can do it. Exhibit A in the front row here. <laughs> I mean, I can call up a whole host of idiots here and we'll all stand here, all right? It's not that hard. The schemes of Scotland are not unevangelized because Christians lack money. Christians are some of the most generous people in the country when it comes to giving to social issues it is down completely to a lack of will from the Scottish church. It's not that the church cannot evangelize the schemes, it's that the church will not. Will you allow God to change your mind about this? Will you open your eyes to the need on your own doorstep? Will you sacrifice career, ambitions, children's education, a nice house in the suburbs maybe even your life, to reach the schemes of Scotland. The good news is you don't have to do it alone. We will stand with you. We will sacrifice money, time, reputation, health. We will do whatever it takes to get it done. You don't need special qualifications to do it. It doesn't matter if you finish school or not. You don't need to have gone to jail to do it. (laughs) Don't need tattoos either. And you don't need to have been a drug addict. You need any of these things, you need a love for Jesus, you need a love for fellow Christians, and you need a sacrificially dying, servant-hearted spirit prepared to go all in. Do you know what happens? Jesus takes care of the rest. Now, I was particularly struck by one line we sang yesterday from the hymn, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Here's the line, or two lines, or whatever. It says this, I give thee back the life I owe. Remember singing that? Maybe it meant you feel nice. Maybe you sang it and you don't really know what you're singing. Should we say it again? I give thee back the life I owe. Really? that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. I'd love for every single Christian here to leave this this afternoon wanting to serve God in a scheme. But failing that, I'd love for every single Christian here to go home today prayerfully seeking to be all these things in your own church body regardless of your context, for the sake of the kingdom, for the glory of the Lord, and for the benefit of the body of Christ. Amen? Amen.